Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to For the Love of the Game, episode 57, powered by Overtime Media. Let's rock. So, so, let's go. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Episode 57 for the love of the game. It's your boy ATH. What a weekend in sports. Now, I'm still getting over my post-summer sadness, but a packed sports weekend is a decent remedy. Sunday was one of the better sports Sundays of the year, and the best thing I saw all Sunday had nothing to do with the NFL's opening weekend, so let's dive right in. As I was alluding to, the best thing I saw this weekend was the U.S. Open men's final between Daniel Medvedev and Rafael Nadal. While most people were watching sloppy NFL football like sheep that they are, I was glued to this match because holy cow what a match it was. Close to five hours, five sets, thrilling shot making, and in the end, Rafa Nadal outlasted Daniel Medvedev 7-5-6-3-5-7-4-6-6-4 to win his 19th major title and third U.S. Open title. A quick word on Medvedev, who started out as a villain in the eyes of the U.S. Open fans. Now, he's only 23 years old, and he just oozes talent, oozes talent. And in this match, he showed a little bit of moxie. There were points where it looked like he was going to be blown out of the building, that Rafa Nadal was going to have a cakewalk in this match. You know, he went down two sets to love. And had a couple of real mental brain farts. And uh, Nadal jumped out to that two sets to love early lead. But he battled back like crazy. Displayed a tremendous shot making. Played great defense and turned the match into an absolute street fight. Ultimately, he didn't complete the comeback. But the future is super bright for him. Again, only 23 years old. Unbelievable, this guy. As for Nadal, number 19 and only one behind Roger Federer. Just unbelievable. I never love his chances at the U.S. Open or the Australian Open like I do at Wimbledon and obviously the French because his style of running, I mean, hardcourt is a little bit harder on the body and the way he is so violent in his movements uh, and his shot making because the ball doesn't spin and dance as much on hardcourt that it does on clay and grass. But he's now won three U.S. Opens. His career has had multiple points where it looked like he was done because his body was breaking down. But he's still here, and he's just as strong as ever. What a career he's had. And it looks like it's still going strong. Absolutely amazing. Kudos to you, Rafa Nadal. Uh, And on the women's side, while Serena Williams lost in straight sets to the young um, Canadian, Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Thank goodness uh, now that I've been branded the anti-Serena podcast. This is wonderful. Another choke job by Serena getting blown out in a final. Now, 
besides for the final uh, of these matches during the year, she's been 30-2 and two in majors, which is pretty amazing. But she can't, you know, close the door anymore. She can't finish the job. And maybe it's because she's not in shape enough to have the stamina to go, you know, the entire tournament. Whatever. Good for women's tennis that the young kids are coming up, making names for themselves, like, you know, the young champ, 19 years old, Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka. Good for the women's field. We've had enough of Serena Williams. Get her out of here. She's a great champion and a model for women's sports, but her time is over. As for baseball, the Yankees eliminated those assholes from Boston this weekend which is nice. James Paxton, another great start. The Yankees keep rolling. As for the Mets, well, they're four games back of the wild card spot. Not looking great, even as great as Pete Alonso is. What a season he's had. Let's see what happens in the next few weeks. I'm still holding out hope for the Mets, even though I should never expect anything from them. And as for the Yankees, well, the Astros don't lose, so they got to keep winning to get home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Let's get it done and bring home title number 28. A little something on the NBA. A a small Twitter clip that I saw to get my hate juices flung, which is good because I love the NBA with all my heart. And some good old sports hate is good for the soul, especially for somebody who's battling uh, post-summer depression. My guy, who I can't stand, none other than James Harden, was videoed doing a boxing workout with his shirt off. And let's just say... He's not a guy who should be filmed working out topless. The guy looks like he's five months pregnant, easily carrying an extra 10 to 15 pounds. And yes, it's the offseason, sure. He's been great in the regular season, spotty in the playoff at best, but whatever. That's a different subject for a different day. But the way he campaigns in the media about getting slighted in MVP voting and the way the stat nerds and the analytics community are gushing over him and actually trying to argue, seriously argue, make the argument that he's better than Kobe Bryant at this stage in his career and better than Dwayne Wade, which is just outrageous considering he hasn't won shit in his career, with a major reason being that he gets fatigued and heavy legs in the playoffs. Well, maybe it's because you let yourself go in the offseason, you play your way into shape. The great players, the real great players, know that it's a a 12-month-a-year league. You work out all 12 months. You need to be in shape for all 12 months to be great. You never saw Kobe Bryant with a gut like that. LeBron James is always in shape. Michael Jordan, always in shape. James Harden is this entitled little bitch who thinks that he has this great standing in NBA history, which he doesn't, and he clearly doesn't have the work ethic to achieve that. He's like Charles Barkley of his generation. A great, great player. A supremely talented player. But didn't take being in shape seriously enough to really ever be super, super, super great. The only difference is is that Barkley always played well in big games, even in losses, where James Harden has not played well in big games. I wonder why that is, James. Uh, I mean, look at Shaquille O'Neal, who is a top 10 NBA player. But Shaquille O'Neal left it on the table because he didn't care about being in shape for most of his career. Shaquille O'Neal should be one of the three or four greatest players in NBA history. Kobe Bryant even said so. You know, in that interview he just did where he's like, if Shaq was in shape, I would have won 12 rings. 
Well, Shaq didn't care about being in shape. He left something on the table, and that's why ultimately Kobe Bryant had a better career than Shaquille O'Neal. Even though at his peak, Shaquille O'Neal was the second most dominant player I've ever seen. Being in shape is important. So, James, if you want to have the respect and the standing in NBA history that you wrongly believe you already have, maybe stop posting highlights of your bullshit runs where no one plays defense with Rico Hines and actually work on your body too and not just some BS one-footed three ball. Just a thought. I mean, nothing like for me an anti-Harden rant to get the juices flowing. I, nothing like it for you, boy. That was just wonderful. Can't wait for NBA season. Oh, and the U.S. clinched an automatic bid in the Olympics uh, in the basketball field with their FIBA showing. They play France in the semifinal um, later this week. And now on to the NFL. A mixed bag of NFL football, and that's being kind because there was a lot more shitty football than good football. Let's start with the two local teams. The first being my New York Giants, who got their doors kicked in against the Dallas Cowboys 35-17. Not great. The Giants offense was not the problem. Eli Manning actually played pretty well. The offensive line wasn't terrible. Saquon Barkley, who is so, so good, who's basically Barry Sanders 2.0, which is a compliment and sad at the same time, considering his career may end up being exactly like Barry Sanders. Even Evan Ingram, who I've haven't been the biggest fan of, looked great, somehow learned how to catch over the offseason. That's nice. But my God, that defense is flat-out atrocious. Just appalling to watch. I mean, they made Dak Prescott look like Joe Montana in his prime. Zero pass rush. Zero. Maybe, just maybe, if they were serious about winning, they should have taken the elite pass rusher at 6 and waited on Daniel Jones at 17. Seems like a pretty good idea when you have to get to the quarterback, considering the rules today where defensive backs can't play as physical as they once were able to do. But that's just me. But what's done is done. It's a young defense, uh, so it looks like this will be a long season for Big Blue. They do have a couple of winnable games in the next month, uh, starting next week against Buffalo. I mean, as much as I'm trashing on the Giants, the Cowboys are really good. And the uh, Buffalo Bills, well, let's just say they're not the Cowboys. So who knows? Maybe the Giants will pick up a couple of wins early on in the season. We shall see. And then there are the Jets. Oh, those New York Jets. Jets fans were getting loud on Twitter. There was playoff buzz with the New York Jets. Darnold making a leap. C.J. Mosley, great signing. Le'Veon Bell, we've got players now. And then Sunday happened where the Jets forced... Four first-half turnovers, which only led to six points, blew a 16-point lead at home to the Buffalo Bills, one of the sorriest franchises in the history of the sport, and lost 17-16. The new year, the same old Jets. And to all the Jet fans who love Sam Darnold, I pity your stupidity because Sam Darnold isn't winning you anything. Sorry, he's just not. He's the second coming of Matt Stafford. Just good enough for coaches to keep their jobs and for them not to draft a replacement, but ultimately not winning you squad douche. And to all of you who said that the Giants made a mistake drafting Saquon Barkley too, 
I've said it once. I said it again. I would rather draft Saquon Barkley, who I know is going to wear a gold jacket at the end of his career, than reach for a quarterback who I don't think is going to amount to anything. Daniel Jones may or may not be good. That's up in the air. But I do know that Sam Darnold isn't going to win you a Super Bowl, isn't going to be a franchise savior. So, yeah, I think the Giants did okay in that draft. Anyway, uh, notes from around the league, uh, besides for just the local teams, uh, a couple of highlights. um, And obviously the biggest NFL story had nothing to do with the games played on the field. But before we get into that, uh, a couple of notes from the games that were played on the field. The Miami Dolphins may go 0-16. So much for picking them to cover the 5.5 points last week. That, uh, That was over within the first 10 minutes of the game. And by 10 minutes, I mean the first four. Uh, Kyler, The Kyler Murray experience started off pretty ugly, but ended up being super exciting. What a second half he had to um, come back and force the tie for the Cardinals against Detroit. Patrick Mahomes, still really awesome. Brian Schottenheimer, the offensive coordinator for Seattle, may be the worst offensive coordinator in the league. The fact that he has arguably a top three quarterback in Russell Wilson who can throw, who can run, and they run that offense with all the straight handoffs, just absolutely garbage. It's unfathomable that that guy's still employed. I mean, the fact that Seattle didn't win that game by 15, let alone cover the 9.5, was an absolute joke. I mean, just disgusting. Jameis Winston, the current quarterback and former number one overall pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Well, odds are he'll be in the XFL next season because he's terrible. Threw two pick sixes. Not great. The Browns got a sweet piece of humble pie, losing to the Tennessee Titans by 30. Baker Mayfield, not a great game. Uh, Talking a lot of noise, Baker. Talking a lot of noise in the offseason. You came out looking terrible. And that was one of the bets I actually won week one. I said, uh, take the Titans uh, with the points. Turned out to be good. And uh, lastly, one of the takes I've been sitting on for a while. The Matt Ryan is grossly overrated and actually pretty awful take. Well, he was disgusting in week one against the Minnesota Vikings. Put up garbage time stats. His final line will be, you know, over 300 yards, whatever. There is no bigger empty calorie stats guy than Matt Ryan. He's like way up in the stratosphere as empty calorie stats. And besides for that one year with um, when they went to the Super Bowl with Kyle Shanahan, he's been really mediocre, but no one seems to, to get it. Uh, I think I've been on an island on this, but... Like most of the time, I'm proven correct. I just, I, I guess, I know it when I see it. It's a talent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help it. Uh, yeah, he was pretty terrible. Um, and the Vikings really curb stomped them. That game wasn't a um, wasn't really a contest. As for my picks against the spread, well, week one was rather disappointing. Came in at two and three. The Seattle game is still bothering me, as I mentioned before. But here are my picks for week two. Five picks against the spread. Here we go. First, I've got Seattle plus four in Pittsburgh. Now, I know they hurt me in week one, but this Pittsburgh thing, I mean, they looked flat out atrocious against New England. I know they're coming home. I get they won't be as bad. But I also think Seattle left uh, a couple of plays on the table last week also. I'm always bullish on Seattle, so I think you take the points here. 
Two, the Giants plus two. Uh, the rule of the home underdog, I think, plays here. I don't love the Bills' offense. I mean, I think it will be a low-scoring game, even though the Giants' defense is bad. Um, I like the Giants uh, plus two at home. Three, Colts plus three. I mean, this Colts team is kind of frisky. You saw that Sunday with their showing against the Chargers, taking them to overtime. And I really, I know the Titans beat up on the Browns week one, but I don't love the uh, the Tennessee Titans. At four, I, Bears minus one and a half. Another team that bummed me out week one, but the Broncos stink. I mean, they stink. Joe Flacco stinks. I, I like the Bears here. And at five, uh, I got the Patriots minus 19 against the Miami Dolphins, who look like a D3 college football team. 19 is a huge number. There's usually some market correction. But, I mean, come on now. You have the Antonio Brown uh, debut for the Patriots, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, He won't even be a big factor in this game, but they, uh, the Patriots are freaking awesome. I mean, this offense is loaded. Their defense is great. I don't see how the Dolphins score more than 7 to 10 points, and the Patriots could put up 40. So those are the picks. Uh, Just to recap, Seattle plus 4, Giants plus 2, Colts plus 3, Bears minus 1.5, Patriots minus 19. And now to the biggest NFL story that had nothing to do with the games played on the field, the Antonio Brown saga, the ultra-talented wide receiver that the Raiders traded for. Well, he's no longer on the Raiders. He was fined 200 k for conduct detrimental to the team, which then voided his $30 million in guaranteed money, so he was going to be playing week to week. He then asked to be released, And he was released and ended up with the New England Patriots for one year, $9 million guaranteed, up to $15 million with incentives. Because, of course, this would happen. Of course the Patriots come out on top here, because why wouldn't they? But before we get into that, uh, here's a quick rundown of Antonio Brown's stint with the Raiders. Here's all the things that have happened this offseason. One, he burned his feet in a cryotherapy chamber. Um, by not wearing the proper shoes. Basically got frostbites all over his feet. It was all over social media, looking disgusting. I mean, I don't know about you, but wide receivers, they need their feet to be able to do their jobs. Just weird. Two, he he was told he can't wear his old helmet, and he proceeded to not try and practice because he threatened to retire if he couldn't wear his old helmet. Everybody else in the league... Didn't have an issue with the helmets. Antonio Brown magically had an issue with the helmet. Three, he secretly records a phone call between him and John Gruden talking about him getting his ass back on the field and just playing football and not worrying about the helmet, and then he releases it on social media. Not great. Four, he gets into a shouting match with GM Mike Mayock, allegedly almost punches him in the face, and then calls him a cracker. Not great. And again, you know, say what you want about the term cracker being a derogatory term, but if the roles were reversed, there would be a lot more outrage. I'll just leave it there. Five, he Instagrams a letter detailing the fine from the team, leading to more fines from the team. Six, he then apologizes. 
He looks like he's going to get suspended. He then apologizes week one uh, to get ready for week one and um, apologizes with the captain's heartfelt letter. Looks like he's going to play that Monday night. But then he ends up getting fined again, gets released, and now he signs with the Patriots. I mean, these are all actions of an absolute lunatic, a crazy person. As talented as he is, and again, he's had 100 receptions in the last six years straight. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, he, he's great, but he's a legit psychopath. I have never seen someone self-sabotage himself out of millions of dollars like this in my life. Insane. So, of course, there's outrage on Twitter when the news breaks because that's what Twitter does. Mike Greenberg on ESPN's Get Up said it was the most selfish act he's seen in pro sports and that he's been covering pro sports for over 20 years, and this is the most selfish act. So then that clip on Twitter goes viral, and people are responding, well, you know, Tanya Harding attacked Nancy Kerrigan, and you know, Aaron Hernandez killed somebody. Like, these are in, like, the same category, all right? Yeah, attacking somebody, physically assaulting them, not good. Murdering somebody, not good. But But that's not what Mike Greenberg was alluding to. Mike Greenberg was alluding to... A selfish guy in a team construct who was acting way above the team and literally putting himself so far ahead of of the team that it was going to destroy the team. And guess what? They got rid of him and they won Monday night, even being a home underdog. I mean, it's not the same as as attempting to, uh, to sabotage somebody's career with physical violence. It's not the same as murder. But in terms of in team construct, this is really, really bad. Which brings me to my larger point. We have gotten to a point where we as sports consumers, a sports viewing society, have become so pro-player that the players should be able to control their own destinies and player empowerment that we have gone completely overboard. And it's led to players acting like complete assholes, and the sports media can't ever criticize a player anymore. It's just a joke. When Antonio Brown pulled was absolutely terrible in the construct of team sports, and it was completely disgusting. And anybody who sympathizes with him is an asshole too. And yes, I said it. Lastly, if you think the Patriots, who have been enamored with Antonio Brown for years, and Brown has been enamored with the Patriots for years, weren't a little behind this, pushing him to act this way so that the Raiders had to cut him, well, I think you're a little naive. Because of course the Patriots were behind this just a little bit. And if it's more than a little bit, then the NFL really has to do something drastic. Because now we're getting into real, real real can of worms here. Uh, With that said, I'm bringing on a recurring guest to talk about the Antonio Brown situation in just a minute. And that segment is brought to you by Overlay DFS. Uh, Are you sick and tired of losing on FanDuel and DraftKings to Sharks that have over 100 lineups in each contest? Well, Overlay has a new revolutionary start-sit game in fantasy sports. They are the home of the single-entry GPP. Uh, actually, if you listened to last week's episode, I had one of the founders on, Iris Silver, to talk about it. Uh, I tried it out this past weekend. It's great. But here's how it works. Uh, so you're going to decide who will score more fantasy points between two players in their prospective matchups. Make 12 picks. Make 12 picks in the matchup options listed. For example, this week's NFL 
two matchups include Tom Brady versus Philip Rivers, who's going to have a better game, Sony Michelle versus James White, Carson Wentz versus Matt Ryan, Julio Jones versus DeAndre Hopkins, and you pick them based on your confidence in each of those matchups. If you finish in the top 10% of the field, you win nine times your buy-in. If you go a perfect 12-0, win the progressive bonus of over $25,000. Week one's money winners went eight and four, won nine times their buy-in. They have buy-ins for all levels. If no one hits the perfect 12-0 record in the progressive bonus, it keeps growing and rolling over. It's like the super contest, but for daily fantasy sports. So don't get shut out. Visit www.overlaydfs.com. That is O-V-E-R-L-A-Y-D-F-S.com. And enjoy. And now let's get into tonight's recurring guest about the Antonio Brown saga and the New England Patriots. Okay, um, one of the few people I can stand from the Boston, New England area, uh, recurring guest Zach Weiner, had to have him back on given the, um, the Antonio Brown situation and that he's now a Patriot. The Patriots won big in week one. I hate his guts. Zach, I'm not going to bring up the fact that the Boston Red Sox were eliminated and that Dave Dombrowski was fired. And I'm not going to, we're not going to debate the merits of, or the lack of merits of the Kirk Minahan podcast. We got to talk about the Antonio Brown podcast. <laughs> and they, they totally covered up the Dombrowski thing by throwing David Ortiz out there like a prop. It's crazy. Well, that, well, that's what Boston does. I mean, they, yeah, they're, the worst. They, they're, they're terrible human beings up in the, uh, in the 617. But uh, <laughs> tonight was mainly about uh, Antonio Brown. And I want yes. to get your honest, as, as po- if possible, non-biased thoughts on the Antonio Brown situation. What were your immediate reactions when you heard the news? What was going through your head? Okay, so I would say, first of all, before they got him, I will happily admit that I was one of those people that was like, no way. You know, like basically when, when, he, when he was about to be cut and when he was cut – everyone's immediate reaction was like, oh, this be, you know, the, the, the quintessential Belichick move to go in there and get him. And I was like, there's no chance it's going to happen. They don't need him. Um, I, I don't think the Patriots, which I'll get to in a little bit, but I don't think the Patriots knew slash thought that they were going to get Josh Gordon back as early as they did. So the fact that they already had Josh Gordon, there's no chance they're going to take him. My immediate, immediate reaction was I laughed out loud because y- you knew the Internet was going to explode. And just all the hate was going to come out, all the conspiracy theories. Oh, because they were um, in on it. They've been planning this for, it, it, for months. <laughs> it's um, I love the conspiracy theories. I love the conspiracy. Like like they they like planted him in Oakland so that they wouldn't need to give up any draft picks, and then and then they got him when they when when he's worth nothing. Well, it's um, not a conspiracy theory if it's true. When they were reaching out to him via social media and text message on the side, it's like, oh wait, sabotage your time with the the Raiders because we can't trade for him. That did not happen. That did not happen. They 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 tried to get him in March. Uh, the Steelers refused to do it, which I respect. The Steelers, the Steelers hate the Pats. And um, the, and here's with the back channels. This is what happened. Uh, I don't know, but I, I do think I, I am surprised. The, one of the biggest surprises to me is that well, I, I guess one of the things that like adds fuel to the fire that the Pats were in on it is how quickly he signed with the Pats. Oh, you don't um, think? Yeah, it's like like literally like he was cut at like you know 10 a.m. on Saturday and signed with the Pats like before 4 p.m. on Saturday. It's it's crazy because um, they had the but, contract ready for months. Yeah, they, well, they, they probably had it ready in March. 
I don't know, but but I, I, I you know now that we have him, obviously I love it. Um, and you know, I don't, the the reason why someone like you is so upset about it is because you know that that the Pats are an organization that see it's it's such a low risk move because the minute that he becomes a problem, they'll drop his ass. So. It like it, it's either he is what everyone thinks he is uh, talent wise, and it's amazing, and you know the Pats just roll their way to the Super Bowl again, um, which I believe was going to happen anyways without him. Um, or things don't work out, and they'll just cut him, and it is the most low risk move ever. And that I think that's what hurts Patriot haters the most is that not just that they got him, but how low risk it is to get him. So you're not nervous at all that his persona and his stupidity can hurt the Pats at all because obviously they can just cut him, but you don't think that he can somehow like infect the team because they sure as all. hell don't need him. I don't at all. I, I, I was nervous a couple of years ago when they brought in James Harrison. That made me nervous, and uh, it turned out to be – you know, they were they were one or two plays away from winning the Super Bowl with him. Um, I was a little nervous this offseason when they brought Michael Bennett in because Bennett is like a very, very, very outspoken um, liberal and anti-police. And that's, you know, uh, pretty much the complete opposite of Belichick. He even said to the media, you can't wait to talk politics with Belichick. And everyone's like, what are you talking about, bro? That's turned out to be totally fine. And he's like, doing his job. And he, he had a great week one. Um, he had a great preseason training camp, everything. So I, I'm really like, if he's a problem, which I really actually don't think he's going to be, but if he's a problem, they're, they're just going to cut him. So why should football fans not hate the Patriots with a passion? No, they should. Of course they should. They should hate the Pats. You People hate teams that win all the time. I remember once upon a time, people loved the Golden State Warriors, and they loved it when they won their first title, and now, now everybody hates the Warriors. So you, if you keep winning, I expect that any team that keeps winning should, will, will be hated. So I, I, think, I think everyone should hate the Patriots. We love it. As, as Dave Portnoy always said, it's lonely at the top. So you should hate the Patriots. They, they, and by the way, the Patriots... I thought were not that great last year, and they went on to win the Super Bowl and only give up three points to a Rams offense, and now their offense and defense is better than it was last year. So absolutely, people should hate them. I can't stand you fucks. I can't stand you guys. Let me get to what what I said earlier about the Pats did not know. There's no way the Patriots knew they were going to get Josh Gordon back as early as they got him. You know, maybe if he was going to be reinstated, maybe later in the season. But I'll, I'll tell you something. The Patriots have a, for the, for the first time, I don't know how many non-Patriot fans know this, for the first time in the 20 years that Belichick has run this team, he drafted a wide receiver in the first round with uh, pick 32. They took this guy from Arizona State named Nikhil Harry. He's on Nikhil the IR. Harry, he's on the IR. He's coming back week eight. Um, he is six foot four, 225 pounds. Josh Gordon is 6'3", 225. So they clearly were trying to draft uh, what they think is or could be um, uh, another Josh Gordon. So actually, I don't know if you saw the news today, but that they the Pats traded away Demarius Thomas. I did see um, the news to the Jets. I was, which, which, by the way, is crazy because it's the first time Belichick's ever made a trade to the Jets. Up until this trade, he had traded with all 31 other teams except for the Jets. 
Um, but I like the move because once we got Brown, I was a little nervous that maybe Harry is going to fall out. So that trade to me is a little bit of a commitment to Nikhil Harry. So I think like people who hate the Patriots should be even more nervous, not just because of Brown and Josh Gordon and you know um, and Edelman and even Philip Dorsett who had a freaking night, you know, and uh, and he's Dorsett's basically been great since the playoffs last year. But also, you got Ben Watson, who's coming back from suspension, and then you have Harry who comes in midseason. So, um, and I refuse, by the way, I will not be answering any questions in this interview about Gronk. He's not coming back, and we're not going. We're not discussing Gronk. Oh, because I, I, yeah. I would not be surprised if he is. Um, the one, I, I, I the one redeeming I, quality. It's, it's Calvin Johnson God, to me. It's he's the one redeeming quality of your godforsaken yeah, franchise. I can't stand you guys so much. I wish, I wish he was playing, but but I, he's not. He's not coming back. He's done. By the way, Josh Gordon looked unbelievable. Um, oh my god, unbelievable Sunday night. And yeah, it, it was only what four years ago where Antonio Brown led the league in receiving, and Josh Gordon was number two in receiving. And now you have both of those idiots. God, right. it's the worst. Um, <laughs> that the trade with Demarius Thomas to the Jets. Is like by the, the way, boys, oh, one, yeah. one quick thing, Aaron. One quick thing is that also. The Patriots this week are playing Miami, and so in in the grand scheme of overreaction NFL, so like Brown is going to play on Sunday. He'll have a few catches. They're going to drop like you know a thousand points on this team, and people are going to freak out. Even though the Dolphins are just total trash, but it's going to like people. It's going to be you know just an exclamation point on how everyone feels, just because you know it's not like they're playing you know Kansas City this week. You know, right? We'll get we'll get to that line in a second, but yeah. uh, it's the first. It's the first time that the Jets and the Patriots made a trade since crazy. Uh, Bill Belichick spurned the Jets for the New England Patriots. And you've seen what the Jets have become, and you see what the Patriots have become because it's the same old Jets. But anyway, um, the uh, so Josh Gordon looked great. Uh, you have Antonio Brown. And the trade with Demarius Thomas to the Jets is just like that ultimate screw you because it's like we're playing you in three weeks, right? Right. And, and and you should and this guy Demarius Thomas should know everything about us because he's been with the organization with the team for X number of months and it still won't matter and we'll give him to you and you can have our secrets and we'll go out there and we're gonna beat your brains in because we're the New England Patriots and you're the New York Jets and I'm a Giants fan and I'm still angry about this. The the, the Jets are like the fact that they they took Adam Gase who was a failure in Miami and brought him to like. It's the craziest thing to me. I can't believe they did that. Um, I mean, I, I watched the game on on Sunday against Buffalo. It was like the most pathetic choke job. Like, Buffalo's a shit franchise. Again, they went to the playoffs two years ago, and it just totally fell from grace. They, they, they're terrible, and they were able to make that comeback. The Jets can't find a kicker. No, Nobody's hitting kicks for them. Um, and I don't even know if, how many secrets Thomas has to share because – he was out with the ACL for the first three preseason games. They threw him in there with the, you know, with the junk players um, for the fourth preseason game against against your Giants. He actually looked pretty good, but I mean, again, it was against second teamers. He was playing with a bunch of second teamers, um, and he he's clearly wasn't ready because he, he wasn't on the active roster for Week One. So he's still coming back from that ACL. So I don't even know how much he has to give. Plus, you want to talk about like classic Belichick? They got him for pennies on the dollar in the off season. And then they trade him for a six-round pick. So he actually makes a profit on the whole thing. Um, okay, so uh, last two questions before I yes. I throw Hang this microphone. Yeah. Um, 
why should I not lay the 19 points uh, on the Patriots in Miami Sunday? Because no matter how good the Patriots have ever been and no matter how bad Miami has ever been, the Patriots always struggle in Miami. And it's really weird. Um, I remember one time, I must have been back in high school, and we're talking like during the first three Super Bowl era, um, the Pats went into Miami on a Monday night. They were like 13-1, and one, I think. Um, and Miami was 1-12, something along those lines. Um, it was supposed to be the biggest joke of a game, and Miami beat them. Um, so I don't know what it is about going to Miami and losing, but it's what the Patriots love to do. Last year was the quote-unquote Miami miracle. The Pats had it, and then they did the whole lateral thing and lost. Um, so the Pats are going to win the game. Um, I'd love to think all signs point towards an easy bet on that, you know, 19-point favorite. Um, but for some reason, they just don't, you know, they don't play well in, in Miami. Um, and it's still summertime, so it's probably going to be freaking hot as hell there. Um, so I like the Pats, but but that's why, you know, if you ask me for a reason to not bet it, that's what I would say. Well, in my pick five, uh, I you've maybe convinced me 5%, but you haven't really persuaded me uh, past no, I'm, 50%. Yeah, well, I'm basically giving you a reason why, like, you, I wouldn't bet it, but I also might still bet it, you know? Um and last question before I uh, I let you go, and I'm going to try and be cordial and not hang up uh, on you all of a sudden. <laughs> if there was one thing that you're nervous about this Patriots team uh, in terms of going back to the Super Bowl, because it looks like this is the one of the best offenses Brady's ever had, um, and the defense is even better than the offense. Yes. What would be your biggest fear about this Patriots team? And try not to make me throw up in my mouth, please. No, I'll, I'll give you a legit fear. I'll, this is like what I stress over every single game. Um, the year that the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, uh, Donta Hightower, healthy, played. The next year they lost in the AFC Championship to Denver, Hightower was out, was out that season. The next year they beat Atlanta, Hightower was healthy, played in the Super Bowl. He made probably the biggest play of the Super Bowl with the strip sack of, mm-hmm. um, of Matt Ryan. Following season, we lose in the Super Bowl to Philly. Dante Hightower was out for the year that year. Last year, Hightower was back. He was arguably, along with Edelman and our and the punter, Ryan Allen, Hightower was arguably the MVP of the Super Bowl. He is the field general of the defense. He is the quarterback of the defense. He is by far um, our best defensive player. I mean, obviously, Stephon Gilmore is amazing. Devin McCourty, we've got a lot of great players, um, but he is number one. Um, his health is what makes me nervous. So every single time he gets in on a tackle, basically every single time he's out there, um, I get very nervous because I actually think how he goes is how the defense goes. It's um, on paper. It looks like they could withstand a high tower injury, but uh, he, for me, he needs to stay. Um, he needs to stay healthy. And I'll just say, um, I guess one other thing that would make me nervous is going on the road um, in January. So something you and I basically talk about on a weekly basis is New England versus Kansas City. Um, so I just feel very, very confident that uh, New England cannot lose in Foxborough in January. But if they, if they have to go on the road, it's going to be much, much tougher. And they were very close to losing that Kansas City game a couple times um, in January. But you see the week before that, when the Chargers come to town, they lose by, you know, by a hundy. So I would say the two things that keep me, keep me awake at night are Hightower's health and just trying to get that one seed because, uh, you know, the, the need to – keep games in January in Foxborough. Well, 
they're looking like they're going to go 16 and fucking 0, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> God damn it. Patrick Mahomes, you are our only hope. You He's are our only hope, Patrick player. Mahomes. He's an amazing player. I mean, the truth is, he really is. Like, who else in the East? Uh, not the East, sorry. Who else in the AFC? Uh, who else in the AFC? Nobody. I, I still, I still, pathetic. I still think, I still think if the Rams have all their offensive weapons healthy, they're still, they're still a really, really, really good team. Hundred percent agree. They were, they were, they had every chance to win that Super Bowl as well. But um, but for, for the Super Bowl is a total crapshoot because it's one game on neutral ground. So for me, it's just it's looking at the road to the Super Bowl. So that's just focusing on the AFC, and I just don't see it uh, except for Kansas City. But I don't think Kansas City can come into Gillette and win. Kansas City needs their home crowd. Let this sink in, everybody. Tom Brady has basically gone to the Super Bowl almost 50% of his career. Anyway, with that, uh, Zach Weiner, thank you so much for hopping on. I needed to talk to you a little bit about Antonio Brown. I hope he becomes a cancer and (laughs) infects everybody in your organization. And um, it's great talking to you. I hate your guts. I love you, too. Thanks for having me. All right. uh, Before tonight's, uh, wrapping up tonight's episode, obviously I had to bring him back on probably my favorite recurring guest for, for... reasons you could guess my brother josh we got to talk about the tennis match that was sunday joshy what's going on uh all is good two times in about two weeks it's a record for us i know i know well we don't get mom all you know worried that we don't talk besides for this uh we do uh but yeah no we've we've had to talk tennis on the on the podcast because the level of tennis that we saw this summer between the the Wimbledon final with Novak and Roger, which was a classic, and this one between Medvedev and Nadal, which was a classic. I mean, tennis. I mean, is is this the best it's been in terms of like media coverage that in a while? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I mean, you had the two the U.S. Open as well as Wimbledon, but you also had uh, the French Open, which was looking like it could have potentially been a little bit tougher of a match. So between all three of those, you had three great tournaments. So the biggest thing that I took from Sunday was, I mean, we'll get to Nadal in a second and his place in tennis history. But, I mean, Medvedev, 23 years old, starts out at the villain of the U.S. Open, um, wins the crowd over, and when it looks like he was going to get blown out, that he had the moxie to come back and and make this a street fight. I mean, what did you learn from Medvedev, um, and what are what what can you take away from his performance? I mean, it's definitely his fight. I mean, we haven't seen any young player make the sem- make the semifinals or finals, let alone push Nadal to five sets and potentially have a chance in the fifth set to come back from 2-0 um, to make it a real match. I mean, Nadal's only lost when leading 2-0 once in his entire career, and that was at the U.S. Open, but it was in an earlier round, never in a match with this much intensity as well as a match where someone else has never been in this spotlight. So for him to be in this spotlight the first time and not necessarily having this type of spotlight his entire young career when he's only 23 years old, um, whereas 
when Fed was coming up to Nadal, I mean, Agassi, uh, before they broke through and won their first Grand Slam, they were pretty big players on the tour already, uh, pretty big prospects. He wasn't as big a prospect, and this was really his first time uh, in any major where he really made a deep run or had any brand recognition. Well, he definitely made a name for himself here. I mean, it the fifth set, which, you know, he was teetering early, but he was holding on. But it, it was just the, it was as simple as this for me. One guy has been there many times. One guy hasn't. And the other, and Nadal just had the mental toughness to know not to make certain mistakes at certain points of the match. And Medvedev, who'd never been there, just didn't have that experience. And that, and that was the difference because in terms of talent, you know, pure talent, I mean, Medvedev may be one of the three most talented guys on the tour. I mean, physically, 6'6". He can hit angles like no one else. I mean, he plays great defense. It was just a matter of experience for me. I mean, what was it for you? Yeah, I definitely think it came down to experience. He was up a pretty quick break when Nadal wasn't playing great in the first set. He almost could have been up double break. In the first two times that Nadal was serving, he had break points first both games. And he could, if he was up a double break, he could have easily taken the first set and it would have been a whole different match. Um, I think uh, he did miss a couple of shots where he normally would hit in the first set. So I think that might have came down to nerves, not necessarily knowing uh, what the crowd was going to be like, what to expect. Because like you did say, he was the villain and he's coming in. Not like he's playing Dimitrov, who isn't a ultimate crowd favorite, even though he is a big crowd favorite. But Nadal is a guy who's won this three times before um, Sunday, and he's a guy who is beloved by almost all tennis fans because of the way that he carries himself. Whereas Dimitrov is a little bit, yes, he is himself, and he is brutally honest with every single person in the uh in the stadium, but he can irritate some people. I, I was super impressed by him. Um, he kept his double faults, which had been a bugaboo for his him, I should say, throughout the tournament. He kept them kind of to a minimum, um, but it was just those one or two points where he just, uh, I, I guess he... He just wasn't up to the mental task that Nadal had, and that's to be expected because Nadal has seen everything um, when it comes to tennis. Uh, speaking about Nadal for a second, I mean, 19 majors. He's got, what was it, three or four U.S. Opens now, even though I never love his chances on hard court as compared to clay and, um, and grass. I mean, where does Nadal rank in the history of uh, men's tennis greats at this point? I mean, he's got to be, at worst, two or three. I mean, Nadal's always been my guy. I've always liked Nadal. He's always been my favorite. And right now, he's got 12 French Open wins. Obviously, that's amazing. Obviously, his best surface. But outside of clay, he has seven uh, major tournament winners. Seven is a lot for anyone, and even putting that on their best surface. Um, So, I mean, I think uh, people who are now just starting to realize that he's not necessarily just a clay court player having two grass court uh, titles, having four U.S. Open titles and one Australian Open title, and being into the finals in multiple Australian Open finals as well as um, 
previously playing pretty well on the grass. So I think he has become a little bit more of a complete player. They aren't his preferred surface, but he's definitely a complete player. So I think people were would argue that maybe he's not as good as Fed because he has 12 grand slams in one tournament. Um, I think that if he ends up taking the title record, I think he will be um, the best or considered up there with 1A, 1B with Fed, and obviously Novak's right on their tail as well. But um, I think it's just very tough to compare all the different eras because right now all of this court speed are becoming increasingly slower and all the tournaments are becoming a little bit more um, homogenous and pretty much definitely does favor Nadal in terms of his play style because they're becoming slower, but nevertheless, they're still a little, the other tournaments are still a little bit faster than play. Yeah. It, I mean, just an unbelievable career. I mean, there's not much to, not much else to say an unbelievable career. Uh, and it capped off a really great tennis season. Um, it was a pleasure watching it. I mean, I watched it almost every night. Uh, and it was a pleasure, obviously, uh, getting to chat with you about it. And um, I'll see you tomorrow night at Bucket Wednesdays. Um, have a great rest of the evening. And thanks for, uh, you know, taking a little bit of time. Uh, thank you for having me and spreading the tennis word. We got we got to spread it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a great sport that that's undercovered in uh, media. So this will be my angle. I'll be the tennis guy who hates Serena Williams. I'm all for that. They're all for it. Love it. All right. I'll speak to you later, Joshy. Bye. Right, thank you. Thanks again to two of my favorite recurring guests, Zach Weiner and my brother Joshua Tobin Hess, for great conversations. Um, as Josh said, we got to spread the tennis word, and I got to get a little bit of hate out towards the Patriots because that's what's going to get me through this football season, it seems like. And that is episode 57, again, powered by Overtime Media. Take us out, Jagged Edge. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.